this week on the Backtable Podcast. We got involved early on with Julio because um, we were doing the same things, except he was working on dogs. And so I went to visit him in San Antonio. And um, what he was doing was catheterizing the dog's portal vein and shooting in PVA sequentially over, you know, several weeks until he had uh, portal hypertension. Hmm. So I visited him and saw how he was doing things. And then when I got back, we bought some stits from him because he had to pay the dentist uh, at the <laughs> time $200 per cannula. So we bought a couple of pomo stints from him and uh, we used it in pigs and it seemed to work. And, you know, we'd put it in and then afterwards harvest it, take it out and collapse it down again so you could push it in again. And we used palmo stents. I think the most I ever used one was about four, four times. You could oh, collapse wow. it back down before it fell apart. Interesting. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com, and pretty much any podcast platform out there. This is Peter Horner from Denver, Colorado, is your guest host this week, and I'm really excited to introduce our guest today, Barry Yoshida. Barry, I wanted to hear your story. I, I th I th we're, this project is just as a little bit of a background. Backtable is a really fantastic podcast and we cover a lot of different procedures and topics as you know you've probably seen some of these by now yes. my interest my interest is more um as a kind of a history buff i i want to tell some stories i want to hear some stories from the most important people in our, our field i love our field but i think um it's important for us to tell these stories and for the to for them to be retold and put out there in different formats and mediums. I have the daughter book. Very many, not very many people probably have that book and the story of the daughter institutes and which includes a lot about you and your involvement. And I think it's important for us to to tell your story. So I would like to kind of as a general outline start with your background and then go through some of the big sort of highlights of your career. I mean, you are. I mean, I was doing a lot of research, uh, and, and even I, I mean, I thought I knew every a lot about you, but I really don't, uh, until I really started looking into your, um, uh, publication history. And it's just like all of it's, it's pretty uh, deep and extensive, which is really exciting. So, um, and then kind of go into some questions, of course, about the, um, the rep set. And, um, also maybe talk about some things that maybe a lot of people don't know about, you know, projects that you were involved in and like. I didn't know that fallopian tube uh, recanalization was a thing, and you were really involved with uh, Amy Thurmond and, and Rush as well with that. So, yeah, some of that was before your time. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, and you're you're kind of like this link between um, Daughter and Rush, and and sort of like you know, sort of like the 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 first sort of cowboy days, and then uh, sort of like, in, you know, like formalizing research and development. So I think you're, you're just a fantastic person to talk to. So I guess that's a little intro there. Okay. Some of my background is, uh, I grew up on Kauai in Hawaii. Um, so first 18 years I lived on the Island. I don't know if you've been there, but you know, it's a little tiny little Island on the Pacific, mm -hmm. but, uh, Lovely. Went to Oregon State University for uh, 
college and enjoyed it there in Corvallis because um, small little community and uh, at the time it was a small university. After graduating, and I finished in 68, so um, at the time there was a war going on and um, Uncle Sam said, you have six months to sign up. And so first I tried Air Force and they said, sorry, six months waiting list. Then I tried the Navy, they said, sorry, six months waiting list. And so my choices were Army or Marines. And I wasn't about to join the Marines, so <laughs> joined the Army. I don't blame you. And so went to um, training at Fort Ward in uh, California. And after training, they said, okay, you're going to language school. I said, great. Um, because I knew there was a language school there close to Fort Ord. So I thought I'd end up there. They said, you're going to Texas. I said, okay, what language is it? <laughs> Vietnamese. So I went to language school in uh, El Paso uh, for about a year doing uh, training on Vietnamese language. And uh, after that, I, uh, I had a choice. Um, I, I tried to, of course, get out of even going to Vietnam. So there was a choice of going to Officers Candidate School. And um, I went and applied and got accepted. But just at that time, they said, well, you, you have to go training and then do another couple of years. So I said, no, thanks. I'll just go and do my time in Vietnam. Wow. Spent a year in Vietnam in uh, the central and northern uh, mountaintops doing, uh, translating a little bit. Mostly it was, uh, they were passing propaganda or traffic reports, you know, so many cars and trucks in the road. Um, but spent half a year doing that. Then they decided that the 4th Infantry Division was going back to the States. This is 1970. And so I thought, great, I'm going to go back. I said, sorry, you got to serve another six months. <laughs> and so they assigned me to, uh, doing the same thing, but doing up in the air. So we were flying around in a twin engine Beechcraft and, um, wow. listening to whatever they were passing over the air. So after that, yeah, yeah, I was assigned to Fort Hood and you know about Fort Hood, you've heard all the stories about it. Sure. And I'm pretty sure it's true, but that's Fort Hood is actually where I uh, took my test for OCS. So I knew about it and I said, I don't think I want to go there. Why would I want to go there with my language skills? So after, um, writing to Congress people and getting it changed, I ended up working at NSA in uh, Maryland. The National Security and, Administration? Yes. Oh. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> the NSA. The NSA, yeah. Wow, this, this podcast just got a lot deeper right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's but, cool. Yeah. So it was a, actually it was pretty good there. Um, it, you almost were uh, a civilian, actually. Um, the only thing I had to do was put on a uniform and go to work. And, and uh, after that, it was free time and doing this and that, except there was always the army in the background saying, come in, you got to have inspection. 
this, this and that. So not quite a year later, I was uh, discharged and uh, came back to Oregon uh, because my I had gotten married before I went to um, NSA. So my wife is from Oregon and we came back here and uh, gotcha. so I've been here since. Okay. How I got into interventional was through, um, when I got back to Oregon, um, I tried to use my, um, my degree, which was in fishery science and, um, and the island going. Wait, wait, wait. Fishery science. All right. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> all right. That's great. That's so fishery science. And then you go into the military and you go into the NSA and then you come back to Oregon. Uh, yeah. Thinking about what am I going to do with this degree? That's right. There's no jobs available because the government at the time was not hiring. So even the um, state was not hiring. And right. so what choice did I have? Well, my wife wanted to go back to uh, Oregon State to finish up her degree in uh, nutrition. In the meantime, I started working all these odd jobs, working at a plywood mill. Uh, and then eventually I got into a job with unemployment division, the state unemployment. So, um, you know, I was helping people find jobs. And so sitting there, you're looking at the jobs <laughs> list. Hey, there's a uh, uh, radiologic technology jobs. Um, <laughs> so I decided, well, okay, I can do two years and have the government pay for it and find jobs anywhere. So I did that and happened to go to OHSU, well, University of Oregon at the time. Um, right, right. And uh, finish up there. So doing my um, rotations, I, you know, you rotate through the angio department. And uh, I seemed to fit in there. So actually, uh, before I finished the training, I started working in angio with Manny Robinson. I don't know if you know him. Yes, but, he's, he's uh, in the, some of the daughter's videos. Yeah. So he was a chief tech at that time. And uh, Manny Robinson, so yes. It was a good crew to join. And I worked there. And, uh, you know, at the time we were ex extremely busy because we we're teaching the cardiac fellows how to do catheterization. Oh, so uh, we were banging out cardiac cases uh, in the morning. And, um, in the afternoon, we were doing uh, visceral work, and then we were doing a lot of neuro cases too. And so ex we were extremely busy. Started oh, about seven in the morning and ended up a lot of days at eight o'clock at night. Uh, oh wow! Now, what 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 was this in the nineteen seventies? Then what yes, it was seventy. I started working in jail around seventy five, seventy six. Gotcha. During that time. Uh, you know, I learned a lot about angio work because Dr. Rush was a chief. Charles' daughter had um, basically um, is doing other things. But Dr. Rush, or Joseph, as he likes to be called, was the guy that was in charge of most of the angios, except when uh, there was a uh, transluminal angioplasty. Then Joseph would back out and Charles would come in. Gotcha. But the person who ran the show was actually Manny Robinson. He stuck the patient, got the catheters ready, and then handed it over to daughter, who then just stuck a wire down and if and uh, put the catheter in. If there was an occlusion, 
he just shoved the wire down. <laughs> Not much finesse, huh? No. Uh, so <laughs> this is why Joseph wouldn't go in the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. They have very different personalities, daughter. Yeah. That's right. I mean, you could, right. you could not be more opposite um, than those two. That's One was very technical. The other was just, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but Charles was uh, successful, you know, just shoving the wire down through a blockage. Um, oftentimes just went right through and hooked up to the other side. Then uh, it was a matter of shoving the eight French Teflon through there and then the 12 French over that eight French and, and dilating it. Very good. Wow. What, what, what a crazy time. Uh, yeah. Daughter and Rush and all these, and Manny, just all these people there. Um, so you guys are really busy and even training cardiology uh, fellows too, huh? Yeah. Very busy. So it was, it's a good time. And, um, you know, like people describe it as a cowboy time, you know, there's a lot going on. People were just doing this and that. And, you know, you don't, ask questions, you just do it and get away with it. <laughs> and most of the time, in fact, I don't think there was any time that was, um, detrimental to the patient. And most times, you know, you know what you're doing. So things, um, went okay. Right. And so 84, I had gone off to do some fish work, but I came back in 80, 83 and 84, um, went to the research lab. So at the research lab, there was uh, one guy, Robert Bushman, who had gone off to um, train as a PA in Texas. Um, so basically, I was there by myself in 84 and trying to do some of the work that had been previously done with tips. Gotcha. Trying to establish some connections in the pig liver. And uh, as you know, pig livers are pretty soft. So using the Colopinto needle, um, it wasn't easy to find a portal vein in a pig just because mm -hmm. the liver is too soft. So I had a little bit of training from the engineer about soldering and catheters. So I started fiddling around with how to make a better set to access a portal vein in a pig. And, gotcha. uh, fortunately. At that time, Joseph said, um, you know, you need to go to cook. So he sent me to Bloomington and I worked with the engineers there, how to really work catheters, how to solder, how to, um, do things. And so when I got back, I started working on the tip set. So actually the tip set was designed for the pig liver hmm. and, um, it seemed to work. There's been several. Slight modifications to it, different catheters, um, uh, and that, but the, the design is the same as it was originally for the pig liver. So the one where we pull off the shelf now is very similar to the pig design. Yes. Same. Very, very similar. <laughs> so, okay. So I, so I, I think this is really interesting because I, I think right now tips is even still now evolving now we're using ultrasound for, for direct stick. And, and it's yeah. actually really, uh, been exciting with the ice catheter and whatnot. We've had a podcast on that as well, but, um, but I, I was curious because I mean, tips took a long time to evolve from an initial idea that, and, and 
proof of concept that Joseph did at UCLA in 69, right? In dogs, I think. And so, I mean, it took a long time for him to then eventually get the technology like that come that where you come in uh with developing the set and then also the stents the stents were the sort of the ultimate thing that you guys needed for successful tips right because i i was reading that uh colapinto performed a tips in a human in 82 with a grunzig balloon but there was no stent so yes wasn't until much later like 88 89 um that was actually done in a human right with a stent yeah. So, so the stents actually started with Julio Palmas. You know, Dr. Palmas um, came out with a design. First, his first design was actually crossing wires that were soldered. So you would collapse it and then expand it with a balloon. Then he got a um, idea that you could make it out of a cannula. So he had a dentist take his little <laughs> saw or drill or. Uh, yeah. Little, um, grinder and grind slits in a, um, a cannula. But the trick was that you had to get rid of a lot of the metal to make it thin so you could expand it with a balloon. So he's a sonic cleaner and uh, just threw it in there and let it go for a while until <laughs> a lot of the metal eroded away. Oh, and wow. now it was able to uh, blow it up with the balloon. Now, we got involved. We got involved early on with Julio because um, we were doing the same things, except he was working on dogs. And so, I went to visit him in San Antonio, and um, what he was doing was catheterizing the dog's portal vein and shooting in PVA sequentially over you know several weeks until he had uh, portal hypertension, so-called portal hypertension. Sure, it doesn't go really, really high but enough uh, to direct most of the flow away. Hmm. So I visited him and saw how he was doing things. And then when I got back, we we um, bought some stints from him because he had to pay the dentist uh, at the time <laughs> $200 per cannula. So we bought a couple of uh, Palma stints from him and uh, we used it in pigs and it seemed to work. And wow. You know, we'd put it in and then afterwards harvest it, take it out and collapse it down again so you could push it in again. And we used Palmer's tents. I think the most I ever used one was about four, four times. You could collapse oh, wow. it back down before it fell apart. Interesting. But at about that time, Joseph said, let's go to uh, France for a meeting. Uh, this was a meeting in Toulouse. It's an international meeting. So one day riding to the meeting on the bus, um, I sat next to a guy named, you probably know him, uh, Gian Turco. Oh, yeah. He, he's a Gian Turco. <laughs> oh, wow. So he, next on a bus. <laughs> yes. So he was showing me this thing he had in his pocket and he said, this is, this is a Z-stent. And so wow, he cool. said, yeah, take a look at it and play with it and take it home with you. So I did and I played with it and it was okay. Um, <laughs> but trying it in a pig, it didn't quite work because it would shoot off to one side or the other. You wouldn't <laughs> stay in that stenotic part. And so that's where I decided it needed some modification and uh, started working on 
uh, tying the ends and adding bodies to it, um, you know, making the more useful stent. Interesting. Uh, yeah. In the meantime, I got sent to Houston to MD Anderson and um, started uh, working with those guys over there for about a couple weeks. And um, they were using the Z stent, but uh, in a different fashion. Uh, they were using it in the dog and they were just putting it in the, uh, in one of the, in the IVC. One of the guys there at the time was Dushan. Oh, okay. So that's how I met Dushan. Dushan Pauschnik. Dushan Pauschnik. Correct. <laughs> and so, um, it was an interesting time. We, we, you know, we were looking at all kinds of things at, uh, MD Anderson. They had a nice research lab there and they were doing a lot of good things. So anyway, got back to Portland and started working on our pig tips and, um, desi designed it with, um, so-called skirts in the end. So it would stay in place. Um, and that seemed to work pretty well. So. We were successful in establishing a good tips, but, um, after a while the uh, pig liver grew and, you know, and got closed it off actually. And, um, so, but we proved the concept and, um, still working on the tips needle. Um, I went to the pathology lab and tried to get a hold of some of the serotic livers to see how it would, uh, work in the serotic liver. And so tried them in there and, uh, seemed to do okay. Uh, those hard cirrhotic livers and, uh, it worked pretty well. And I got a good knowledge of portal anatomy, uh, just by going through those livers and uh, that seemed to help a lot. Now this is you developing the, the tip, the needle that's in your set. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, um, basically done, but, um, just trying to figure out. You know, because as you know, it's a blind stick and whatever needle you use, if you don't know your anatomy, you never get there. So, um, just going to the pet lab and seeing those livers help to orient the needle and figure things out, uh, is the length correct and this and that, uh, curve correct. And it seemed to work out. So the, the good thing, as you know, about this tip set is that, uh, you can curve it more, um, unlike the colopental needle, you can't curve it anymore. So, yep. um, it works for us and, um, that's the, the way the needle came about. It's, um, you know, just by, because trying to work it in a pig liver didn't, the colopento didn't work. So we had to come up with a different solution. Gotcha. And so that was a start of basically all the the different things we did, you know, from there, I don't, do you know Krasi Ivanchev? No, I do not know. Probably. Tell yeah. Me. So Krasi uh, was a, um, uh, I, I, he was on staff with Anders Lundquist in Lund, Sweden. And so Joseph and I were invited to go to Sweden to help Lundquist with his, uh, project, which was, um, using a pig and teaching anybody basically, because, um, some of those people that he, he was teaching didn't know one end of the catheter or guide wire from the other. <laughs> and it, it was exciting in that you're trying to teach these people 
and they were going to go back after a week of this course and mm. start working on patients. <laughs> and so it's <laughs> a <little> terrifying. <laughs> yeah. So we kind of decided we didn't really want to do that. In any mm. case, that that's when I really met Krasi Ivanchev and um, invited him over to come and work with us because Joseph at the time, this was in 1989, uh, 88, 89, when there was no Dart Institute yet. And Joseph was working in the Angel Lab, basically just with uh, one other fellow um, and trying to do all the patients. So we invited Crossy back to Oregon with us and um, he joined us in 89 and stayed for a couple of years, but Crossy is one of those other guys that's inventive. So he came up with these ideas, but one of the things that, uh, at the time we were doing a lot, of course, was, um, trying to get liver biopsies and the first, um, biopsies, if you read Joseph's book is that, uh, they were using the colopinto needle and that's how he got the idea to do the tips because the colopinto needle, you just ram it in there and sometimes you get bile duct, sometimes you get uh, portal vein. And right. so that's where the idea came about. In any case, the colopinto is just the open 12 gauge needle and, um, our fellows or, um, residents at the time, their residents were working with could not get a core sample. Hmm. So. Crossy and I decided, well, there's got to be a better way. And um, they were all already using uh, true cut needles for um, percutaneous uh, liver biopsies. And as you know, they're short. So, um, yeah, yeah, you couldn't use it transjugularly. Sure. So we decided that, well, you know, if you can go from the side, you could go through the jugular vein and get the same result and right. be a safer procedure. Uh-huh. Yeah. So went back to the lab and started working on longer needles. And because I had the connection with Cook, I was able to get cannulas and wires or whatever I needed and Great. cut some cannulas and start cutting needles, uh, just with a file. You just file it down and make a notch and make, make a nice sharp <laughs> tip on it. Um, cool. bend the, the, uh, because I already had the tip set, I knew you. I could use the curve, the same curve and get into the liver from the jugular vein. So that's how the needle biopsy set came about. Uh, just because we needed a longer set to, to do liver biopsies. And obviously with that set, you were almost hundred percent going to get a piece of liver. Yeah. Um, but there is, there is a trick to using it. I don't know if they taught you that. Well, you were as a fellow, but, um, you always push forward and snap it closed. Yeah. Um, because if you pull back a little, you'll never get a piece. And so, um, you know, that I, Cook was never able to teach people the right way to use that. So, uh, I'm sure a lot of people had trouble with it. I think that's probably the one thing I learned in fellowship at the daughter. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was, that came about just because of uh, a need for a better system. Yeah. Well, it's incredibly useful. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, gosh, I mean, you were involved with so many things. Um, and, and, and then when, when you guys are also involved with, um, we take this for granted, you know, using a Viator for tips. I mean, you know, in the early days of, of tips, obviously the big problem was, was, uh, was the restenosis after uh, a bare metal stent was placed in. It, you got, it didn't take very long for you guys to figure out what was going on, right? Can you tell us a little bit about how it co- yeah. co- covered stent, sort of like your involvement in figuring out to PTFE covering would really help the longevity of tips? Right. So I started working with cover stints. Um, this was um, in probably 90. Um, after the we, we got into the new daughter research lab because uh, I was working with a uh, GI fellow and he wanted to, he had this idea if you use a covered stint um, in the esophagus, you could take care of some of the problems there. So I started experimenting with covering a Z stent. And the, the good thing about uh, the Z stent is that you can make it in any size, any length, or do whatever you want because um, it's, it's uh, so adaptable. Any case, um, I started playing around with silicone coverings. And I would dip it in silicone and then have a covering and then we would put it in the esophagus in a pig. And after about a, a week, it would occlude. Why? Because um, the food would get stuck in it. Um, not the, the silicone was okay, but the food would get caught in it. It was just too sticky. Um, so we're trying to figure out a better way to do it. And taking silicone tubing was the next step already thin silicone tubing and just kind of uh, gluing it onto the, the frame of the Z-stent and that worked better. But silicone is not the right material for a lot of things, especially in arteries and veins. Uh, it's very thrombogenic. So for tips, we, we knew there was a problem because uh, when we had a clot in, in this is in patients, uh, you stick a catheter in there, inject, and you often see the bile ducts filling up. So we knew there was a connection with the bile ducts, but how to stop it? Um, so we started experimenting with all kinds of coverings, whatever was available. Well, silicone was the first, of course. Um, again, it's not good for arterial venous work. And then the Dacron was next. Um, Dacron's used, but um, not in a low flow state as a, as a vein. So, um, that didn't quite work out. There was all these other different materials. Then we started playing around with, uh, PTFE and the gore graphs were just, um, they, they were vascular graphs, um, that you would take off the wrapping around the outside. There was, a, there was always a, in, in the gore surgical graph, there was a wrapping around the initial PTFE to prevent it from tearing. And so you peel that wrap off, uh, stick it, stick a balloon in it and expand it a little, then go sequentially, expand it up. And we could get up to a 10 millimeter diameter. So we were putting that, suturing that onto our Z stents. Um, and it seemed to work, uh, with less, less, um, occlusions. And, um, it was, uh, there was no uh, bile ducts going into it. And and so one of the things that we tried because Gore had some PTFE, then Atrium had some PTFE, we tried the Atrium grafts. Didn't work. Hmm. Now you say, 
why didn't it work? It's PTFE. Yes, it is. But the way the gore graph is constructed, when you expand it, the pores don't get any bigger. It just expands it, but the pore size stays the same. Gotcha. With atrium, the pore size actually got bigger. So ah. the bile ducts were able to grow through those pores and uh, oh, I see. occlude it. Wow. It took us a while to figure, yeah, it took us a while to figure it out because we thought, oh, it's PTFE, what's wrong? But uh, <laughs> after playing around with it, then we figured it out that um, uh. it, the pores just got big enough that the bile ducts could grow right through. Not all PTFE is the same. It's not all the same. <laughs> so after that, we we were fortunate. I don't know if you were around at the time. When did you get get the in? I was I was there at two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Okay, I think just before that, we were experimenting on uh, some of the PTFE in patients, and um, these were transplant patients. So uh, after the um, Stents are placed in there and they got their transplants. We got a hold of the livers, the explanted livers, and took a look at them. And we were able to see just how good the uh, gore grafts were. So in any case, uh, Rich Saxon was there at the time. Do you know Rich mm -hmm. yes. Saxon? Yeah. Yes. So he was involved with uh, us trying all that stuff and uh, putting in patients. Um, and so after he left, he went down to San Diego and... Um, a good, I was working with Gore, and that's how the Viators came about. Hmm. But if you look at a Viator, it's actually non-porous because there is a wrap around the outside to make it all non-porous, completely non-porous. Oh, great! But that's really how the uh, the Viators came about because uh, we couldn't get. Uh, you know, we, we couldn't work with the PTFE outside of just buying vascular grafts. And so, um, Richard was able to work with, uh, Gordon getting that fighter going. No, that's interesting. Cause I, I know he was big in, uh, develop, you know, in, in early adopter of the Viabon, um, Perkins. Yes. He, that's how his connection to Gore developed. Interesting. Cool. Uh, this brings up a good point. Like, um. I was wanting to get your, your thoughts on this uh, with the collaboration with industry. Um, you know, the Daughter Institute formed after, I think Daughter passed away in 85 and then Cook uh, endowed some money in, in around 89, 90 to form the Institute. And, and so it, we can't do what we do without, you know, money and support and engineering. And, and you know, I mean, it's, it's a big complicated puzzle. And like, how, I mean, how did you guys form these relationships with industry other than Cook? I mean, we all know the Cook story, but um, you know, who, who else were you involved with? Was it was it Gore? Um, uh, and you know, there's a lot of collaboration going on. I mean, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I, you know, our main connection was Cook, obviously, um, because they had a first right of of um, making. Mm -hmm. Yeah, make to actually go into production with uh, our inventions or not. Uh, the university owned the patent, but um, uh, Cook had the first right of refusal to use it or not. And so I see. we still had that strong connection. But all of the other industries actually came to us because they knew we had a nice little lab and could do a lot of things and had the expertise. So 
that's how our connections to other companies came about. They actually came to us. We didn't quite go out to seek them, but they just came to us because they knew of our expertise. Um, you know, at the time there was nobody else doing what we were doing. So to test things, uh, is actually pretty easy for us, you know, and, and it's not quite the wild west, but, um, uh, there wasn't as many restrictions at the time. And fortunately, as you know, know that there was a VA hospital next to us. So from experimental work, we could go right to the VA. And this was before they stopped Brian Peterson from doing things. <laughs> yeah, we all know Brian Peterson was the VA cowboy. <laughs> yes. So we, we had all these connections because, um, you know, people would go out and Joseph or whoever faculty would go out and lecture about this and that. And, um, uh, the companies would come out and seek them and say, can you do this for us? So that was our main connections to other industry. Um, but we had our hand, hands full of, uh, a lot of different things. Um, we did a lot of work in different kinds of filters, did a lot of work in, uh, occlusion devices. And then with neural. But Stan Barnwell was a cowboy, of course, and um, yep, great he guy. brought in a lot of people because they wanted to work with him. So we're extremely busy doing a lot of neural work. And, you know, at the time, the companies got their money through cardiac stuff, but they saw that the future was neural. And so they were trying to adopt all their devices and uh, wires, catheters, um, stents, whatever. Uh, for neural work. So we were doing a lot of things with, uh, many different companies. Gotcha. And you guys, uh, I mean, was, was Stan Barnwell involved in first, one of the first to kind of in stroke intervention? Yes. Um, at the time, Stan being a surgeon, a neurosurgeon, uh, knew what he was doing and he developed his skills to the point where, um, he was quite an expert. I don't know if you ever worked with him. I did. But uh, yeah, he was really good. And so he would invite people at companies to come and uh, work with him. And so um, a lot of devices came about because of his expertise. Um, you know, they they would pay him enough money and uh, he'd give him enough advice that uh, <laughs> most of the products had his stamp of approval on it. Mm. Interesting. I mean, yeah, I I just love your story because, it, you know, I interviewed Cumpy, uh, Dave Cumpy a, a few months ago uh, for Backtable. And um, one, one of the sort of themes that kind of is, is kind of woven through his story and your story is like being in the right place at the right time. I don't know how you guys were so lucky or fortunate or, you know, uh, you know, really thought, thinking ahead of your time uh, and, and just surrounding yourself with all these people. I mean, Stan Cope would come and work with you guys, right? I mean, and it was, I was, I was just all kinds of collaboration. Uh, I think it's fascinating. Um, you know, I, I, I see like what you guys were doing, kind of similar to the music and jazz world of the 60s, like Miles Davis and Coltrane, everybody <laughs> play, playing together and like just, just all, it's just wild, you know, everybody's cowboy and off of each other. And it's really interesting. But um, can I, I, I was, when I was, uh, 
looking through your history, I mean, it's it's really cool. I mean, just all the stuff that you've you've done, Barry. Um, you got to be super proud of your career. I mean, you were involved with Brian Peterson with the ultrasound guided dips, right? In two thousand four, with the neuro stuff with Stan Barnwell, you guys did all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, I, I even saw you guys were working on doing a percutaneous retroperitoneal splenorenal shunt, the press shunt in in the nineties, and you know, uh, um, just. A, aortic and venous valve insertion uh, with uh, Pauschenek, uh with this big, you know, with his artificial valves. And um, it's, it's, and, and then it's interesting that we're doing back table and we earlier, we're using Zoom right now, but for this, but um, you were actually a pioneer in using teleconferencing for showing cases with old ISDN network. I mean, ISDN connections. I mean, <laughs> oh my gosh, can you imagine the bandwidth on that? I mean, how do you A or something? <laughs> <laughs> but even before that, we were doing satellite transmissions, which was wow. obviously too expensive. <laughs> um, but that, of course, industry was helping us do that. But yes, um, from satellite to the ISDN um, to web, uh, all all of that, you know, it's just a matter of um, going with the flow, just then. Being in the right place, right time, and, um, you know, we had something to show. So um, what better way to do it than over the wire? <laughs> in one way or another, over the wire. That's right. Everything we do, right? Uh, yeah. Very interesting. Well, I, I, I've i really enjoyed our talk today. I, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, you've had an exciting career. And, uh, you know, if you want to just share maybe a highlight uh, that maybe we haven't talked about or something that you were working on and you, you, that uh, you didn't get to finish, uh, now that you're retired. Congratulations, by the way. Um, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, the best thing that, uh, I can think of is that during my career, I was able to work with a lot of fellows and, um, teach them their proper techniques. Um, you know, not just about tips, but, um, catheterization, uh, using a wire, using a needle. Uh, things that I acquired knowledge from Joseph and uh, Keller and others because <clears throat> during my time I worked with a lot of different physicians all over the world and uh, you know you you pick and choose but you gain knowledge from everybody that you work with and for me to give back in teaching was uh, uh, rewarding and I, that that's a part of my career that I enjoyed the most just um, being able. To to pass on my knowledge to others. I, I mean, that's awesome, uh, Barry. Uh, I mean, um, I, I think it's fantastic. It's a it's a great uh, testament to your talents and uh, and your abilities. You know, your name is on a, a tip set that we all use, uh, and you, it'll be forever uh, re- remembered <laughs> for your for your contributions uh, to something so so important to us. Um, I even saw recently that uh, you've been working um, with Yamadi and Yahangiri and Fursad and, and genicular artery embolization. I mean, you're, you're just like yeah. always, always there, Barry. <laughs> it's like all this cool stuff. I mean, and you're just not, you know, you're, you uh, got quite a legacy, my friend. And uh, I, I really appreciate it. I, I got the chance to scrub in with you and do some pig work uh, back in the in the 2007, 2008 fellowship year. And it was just uh, really cool. I would have loved to stay and do, done a research year, but my wife was done with me with, uh, being <laughs> in school. She's like, another year? No, 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 no. <laughs> so, so I had to get out and do and actually work. So, but yeah, uh, 
I just in closing, uh, again, thanks a lot, Barry, for your time. And uh, just 100, I, I found uh, 143 publications, about 3,000 citations for your work in the literature. I mean, just massive, massive accomplishment. So um, uh, kudos to you and thank you so much. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a nice book to read. I don't know if you have it, but Joseph actually wrote his life story. And the book is called An Interventional Radi Radiolo Radiology Odyssey, The Story of My Life and Work. And it's a small little book, but um, it tells his story and, um, you know, obviously it concludes with the Daughter Institute. So uh, it's a nice little book to read and uh, you'll gain a lot of insight to uh, how things happened and why it happened. So very good. Um, Thank yeah. you for the recommendation. I, I have not read that yet, but uh, I would absolutely love to. And uh, it sounds like you and Joseph were, were very close. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe too close in, in some respect <laughs> because oftentimes he would be talking to me in Czech and I'm looking at him. And say, what the heck are you saying? <laughs> so um, no, we're good friends. Um, and you know, it was a good collaboration because I had free run of the lab and um, he had a lot of ideas. I had a lot of ideas and people from other places came in and gave their ideas and it all, it all came together. Yeah. And Joseph, you know, such a laid back guy. He was easy to work with. Um, and um, oftentimes we would just sit back and talk about sports. <laughs> um, you know, get away from the day-to-day <laughs> work, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's inspiring to work with a guy like that. Um, and you know, you just hope you can carry on the legacy a little bit, but, uh, I see that. I mean, I remember as a fellow, he was always around, uh, he just seemed like a mysterious, you know, Titan of, uh, IR and he was always around. <laughs> he was just always nice and asking what we were doing and, and, uh, always just, uh, so kind to the fellows and residents. And it was just very, very cool yeah. environment. <clears throat> that was him. That was, that was exactly Joseph. Yeah. Very good. Oh, I just, uh, Aaron Fritz just, uh, texted me, uh, the Amazon listing for uh, Joseph's book, and uh, looks like it's a hundred and forty-four dollars hardcover. So can I can I borrow your copy? Isn't that much? <laughs> it's a tiny little book. <laughs> Obviously, maybe I'll get the Kindle edition for one hundred and eight. I tell you what, Peter, <laughs> ask Fred Keller. He's in charge of the books. So. Oh, I see. That's one. for one. <laughs> <laughs> Fred's in, uh, obviously he's retired now in Park City, so he's closer to you. <laughs> Sounds good. I'll I'll, uh, I'll contact Fred. We got to get Fred on the uh, Back Table podcast. Yeah, he should. Uh, we're, we'll, uh, we'll try to make that happen. <laughs>